five. And now, Pastor Comparay. This is Bertrand L. Comparay, and I want to talk to you about Israel's fingerprints. The Bible is written about and addressed to God's people Israel. It is the history of their past, the prophecy of their future, the law of their relation to their God, and the promise of God's eternal care for them. The common misconception that the Jews are Israel, or all that remains of them, has made the Bible meaningless and most of it apparently false to those who hold this mistaken belief. It is just as though you took a good history of the United States, but wherever the name United States appeared therein, you erased it and wrote China in its place. As a history of China, it would be obviously false, but if you applied it to the right nation, it would be clearly true. The Bible's history of Israel's past is known to be accurate, and its prophecies of Israel's future have been fulfilled in every detail down to the present day. When the police have the fingerprints of a wanted man, they know that the man whose fingerprints match those they have is the man they seek. Likewise, when we find the people to whom God has fulfilled all of his promises and prophecies to Israel, we have found Israel. Today, the Anglo-Saxon, Scandinavian, and Germanic nations have Israel's fingerprints in every detail. When we realize that we are Israel, the Bible becomes full of meaning for us. It is our history. It contains God's promises to us. It gives us courage to face the terrible upheaval into which all the world is being drawn. If you will only read the Bible with an open mind, taking no man's word for it, but proving for yourself what the Bible says, then comparing that with what you know of present-day history, you will see that we are God's people Israel, and that, however terrible the trial ahead, we will be brought safely through it when we turn to God. First, let us briefly review the ancient history of Israel. God first made his promises of wonderful blessings to Abram, changing his name to Abraham, meaning father of nations. Note that this is in the plural, nations. God repeated his promises to Abraham's son, Isaac, and again to Isaac's son, Jacob, whose name God changed to Israel, which means he will rule with God. Israel had twelve sons. The descendants of each son became in time a tribe under its ancestor's name. Thus all the descendants of Dan became the tribe of Dan. All the descendants of Benjamin became the tribe of Benjamin, and so forth. For many centuries, all members of all the twelve tribes collectively were known as the children, that is, descendants, of Israel. However, do not confuse this with the later house or kingdom of Israel, about which I will have more to say later. Israel and his twelve sons with their families <clears throat> went into Egypt, as you will remember. And after about two and a half centuries, their descendants left Egypt in the Exodus under the leadership of Moses. For several generations, they were ruled by judges appointed by God. Later, they unwisely copied the customs of the surrounding nations and demanded a king. So Saul became their first king, ruling the twelve tribes as a single nation. This unified nation of twelve tribes, like the United States of fifty states, continued until the death of Solomon in 975 B.C., when it broke into two nations, Israel and Judah. 1 Kings, chapters 11 and 12, tell us how Solomon finally fell into idolatry, misgoverned the people, and burdened them with excessive taxes. Yes, they babbled about new deals and new horizons in those days, too. When his son Rehoboam succeeded Solomon as king in 975 B.C., the weary people petitioned him to ease their burdens. But being vain and arrogant, and surrounded by a lot of bright young Jewish advisors, even as today, he threatened to make their load heavier. The exasperated people of the ten northern tribes revolted and set up their own independent kingdom under Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which is told in detail in 1 Kings chapters 11 and 12 and 2 Chronicles chapters 10 and 11. Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, had left in his kingdom only the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, with most of the Levites, who were the priests. 
And this southern kingdom was never thereafter known as Israel, but only as the house or kingdom of Judah. The northern ten-tribed kingdom was thereafter called the house or kingdom of Israel. Just as the southern kingdom, Judah, took its name from the tribe of Judah, which was the ruling tribe, so also the northern kingdom of Israel was sometimes called Ephraim in the prophecies, because the tribe of Ephraim was the most powerful tribe in it. The histories and destinies of the two kingdoms were thereafter separate. They engaged separately in foreign wars and treaties, and were sometimes at war with each other, as the books of Kings and Chronicles record. From the time of this separation, 975 B.C., the Bible very carefully distinguishes between the southern two-tribe nation of Judah and the northern ten-tribe nation of Israel. This distinction is kept clear both in the historical record of what is past and the prophetic record of what is to come. It would take me all day to cover them all, but for a few examples, see the following. The distinction is made, historically, in 2 Samuel 19, verses 40 to 43, 1 Kings 14, verses 19 to 21, chapter 15, verses 1 to 33, chapter 16, verse 8, 2 Kings, chapter 3, verses 1 to 9, 2 Chronicles, chapter 16, verse 1, chapter 5, verses 5 to 10, and many others. The distinction is kept clear in prophecies in Isaiah 7, verses 1 to 17, chapter 11, verses 12 and 13, Jeremiah 3, verses 6 to 18, chapter 5, verse 11, chapter 11, verses 10 to 17, chapter 13, verse 11, chapter 18, verses 1 to 6, chapter 19, verses 1 to 13. Ezekiel 37, verses 16 to 22, Daniel 9, verse 7, Hosea 1, verse 11, and chapter 4, verse 15, and chapter 5, verses 9 to 15, Amos 1, 1, Micah 1, 5, Zechariah 8, 13, and chapter 10, verses 6 to 8, and many others. Just as we must carefully distinguish between the two nations of Israel and Judah, so also we must carefully distinguish between the nation of Judah and the Jews, as we will discuss at length on the other soundtrack of this tape. Later, both nations were carried into captivity, but separately, at different times, by different conquerors, and taken to different places. Israel was conquered by Assyria between 740 and 720 B.C., and by 715 B.C. all of its people had been deported and resettled in what we now know as Armenia, northwestern Iran, and the region near Baku, around the southern end of the Caspian Sea. The Assyrians brought in other people and settled them in Samaria, the southern half of Israel's old Palestinian land, to which the people of Israel never returned. See 2 Kings chapter 17. From this time onward, the historical parts of the authorized or King James Version of the Bible do not record the further history of Israel, but in the Apocrypha, 2 Ezra 13 verses 39 to 46 records their further journey to ar Sereth, the valley of the river Sereth, a northern tributary of the Danube River in modern Romania, which still bears the name Sereth. At the conclusion of this deportation of Israel from its Palestinian home, the Assyrian king Sennacherib also invaded the southern kingdom of Judah and captured all the smaller cities in it, everything except Jerusalem. The people of these smaller cities were deported, along with the people of the northern kingdom of Israel. Sennacherib's own record of this invasion says that he deported 200,150 people from the southern kingdom of Judah. 2 Kings 18, verse 13, and Isaiah 36, verse 1, mention his capture of these cities. Thus, the Assyrian deportation of Israel included the entire population of the northern kingdom of Israel and a considerable representative share of the southern kingdom of Judah. From this time on, these people became the so-called Lost Ten Tribes of Israel. As we shall see, God took good care of them as he had promised, and you who are listening to this are among their descendants.
The kingdom of Judah, on the other hand, did not go into captivity until 606 to 585 B.C., and it was conquered by Babylon, not Assyria. They were deported to the city of Babylon and settled nearby, a little south of Baghdad in what is now southern Iraq. Not quite all of them were deported, a few of the poor being left behind to cultivate the land, and no other people were brought in to resettle the land. See Second Kings chapters 24 and 25. This Babylonian captivity of Judah lasted 70 years, as had been promised by Jeremiah 20, verse 5, and chapter 25, verse 11, and chapter 29, verse 10. After the fall of Babylon, <coughs> King Cyrus allowed all who wished to return to Palestine, beginning about 536 B.C. See 2 Chronicles 36, verses 20 to 23. Ezra, chapters 1 and 2, records that only 42,360 returned, and their descendants, who had never been called Jews until their Babylonian conquerors gave them that name, turned and lived in Palestine until the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans under Titus in A.D. 70. This reconstructed nation, sometimes called Jewish, was the 70-week nation with the evil destiny to finish the transgression prophesied in Daniel 9, verse 24. In A.D. 70, those who had survived the terrible wars ceased to be a nation at all and became scattered wanderers in all lands. There is not one word in either the Bible or secular history to suggest that Israel either was destroyed or that they went down to Babylon and joined Judah in the Babylonian captivity. And the Jews themselves testify that the genealogy of those who returned from Babylon shows no one from any tribe but Judah, Benjamin, and Levi, the members of the southern kingdom of Judah. To the contrary, it was well known at the beginning of the Christian era that Israel then existed in great numbers. Josephus' great history, Antiquities of the Jews, Book 11, Chapter 5, speaks of them as an immense multitude beyond the Euphrates River. The prophetic parts of the Bible still continue to prophesy the great future of Israel several generations after they had vanished into the Assyrian captivity. Isaiah prophesied until 698 B.C. Jeremiah until 588 B.C. Ezekiel down to 574 B.C. And Daniel to 534 B.C. Jesus Christ was well aware of the existence of Israel separate and apart from Judah and the Jews. See Matthew 10 verses 5, 6, and 23. Chapter 15 verse 24. Again, compare John 7, 35, and chapter 11, verses 49 to 52, which cannot refer to Judah or the Jews, as the Jews were not yet dispersed or scattered abroad, and would not be for another forty years. Only Israel was then dispersed out of its own land. The complete and permanent destruction of the Jewish nation by the Romans under Titus and their subsequent troubles as outcasts in every land are not a failure of the prophecies and promises to Israel, but an accurate fulfillment of the prophecies about the Jews. On the other soundtrack of this tape, we will consider in detail who are the Jews, where did they come from, what is their destiny. But for the present moment, we're still concerned with Israel. With the history of these nations in mind, let us examine God's promises and prophecies about Israel in the Bible. God's promises to Abraham were unconditional. God must fulfill them or break his word. Consider what God said in Genesis 12, 2, 13, verse 16, 15, verse 5, 17, verses 4 to 7 and 19, and 22, verses 16 and 17. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. 
and I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant. Look now toward heaven and count the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. God did not say that he would do this if, or perhaps. These were all unconditional promises. Those promises which were made at Mount Sinai on condition that men should obey God's laws were the promises made through Moses relating to health, prosperity, peace, and so on. The promises to Abraham were unconditional and absolute. And in the New Testament, Paul tells us that these, the law which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. See Galatians 3 verse 17. If the Bible is true, if God's word is good, then these promises must be good. God repeated these promises unconditionally to Isaac in Genesis 26, verse 24. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with thee and will bless thee. For unto thee and unto thy seed I will give all these countries, and I will perform the oath which I swore unto Abraham thy father. And I will make thy seed to multiply as the stars of heaven. And I will give unto thy seed all of these countries. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Again, in the 28th and 35th chapters of Genesis, God repeated his promises unconditionally to Jacob, who is Israel, our ancestor. I am the Lord God of Abraham, thy father, and the God of Isaac. The land whereon thou liest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed. And thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth. And thou shalt spread abroad to the west and to the east, and to the north and to the south. And in thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And behold, I am with thee, and will keep thee in all places whither thou goest, and will bring thee again into this land. For I will not leave thee until I have done that which I have spoken to thee of. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall be of thee, and kings shall come out of thy loins. There can't be any evasion of these promises, and God has always honored them. Even when the children of Israel worshipped the golden calf while Moses was on Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments, God didn't destroy them for the sake of these promises. See Exodus 32, verses 7 to 14. In many places, the New Testament recognized these promises as being still in full effect. For example, in Hebrews 6, verses 13 and 17. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. Wherein God, being willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it with an oath. Again in Romans 11, verses 1 and 2, chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, and chapter 15, verse 8, Paul tells us, I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. For I also am an Israelite, of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the service of God, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came. Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God, to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. So these are the promises of God. If they are false, then the Bible is false. But if they have been fulfilled, then the people to whom they were fulfilled are thereby identified as Israel. But the separate and very different prophecies relating to the Jews show that the promises and prophecies to Israel had no reference to the Jews. Let's look at a few of them. Israel was to have a change of name, while the Jews' name was left to them as a curse. 
In Isaiah 65, verse 15, God tells the Jews, And ye shall leave your name for a curse to my chosen. For the Lord God shall slay thee, and call his servants by another name. But who are God's servants? In many places God repeats this, But thou, Israel, art my servant. Thou art my servant. I have chosen thee, and not cast thee away. For example, see Isaiah 41, verses 8 to 10. Chapter 43, verses 1 and 10. Chapter 44, verses 1, 2, 21 and 22. And many others. This has been fulfilled. Israel is no longer called by its old name, but the Jews have retained their name for a reproach and a proverb, a taunt and a curse, as Jeremiah 24 verse 9 says. Again, the Jews were to be known by their faces. Isaiah 3 verse 9 says, The show of their countenance doth witness against them, and they declare their sin as Sodom. They hide it not. Woe unto their soul, for they have rewarded evil unto themselves. And to this day, the Jew is known by his face, and even getting his nose bobbed can't always hide it. It is a witness against him, while Israel is not so marked. Israel was to become a great nation and also a company of nations, and to be a nation forever and to have a king forever. See Genesis 35, verse 11, Jeremiah 31, verses 35 to 37, and chapter 33, verse 17, Psalm 89, verses 3 and 4, 2 Samuel 7, verses 13 to 16, Isaiah 9, verse 7, Luke 1, verses 32 and 33, and so forth. These say... <clears throat> A nation and a company of nations shall be of thee. Thus saith the Lord, which giveth the sun for a light by day, and the ordinances of the moon and of the stars for a light by night. If these ordinances depart from before me, saith the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall cease from being a nation before me forever. For thus saith the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit upon the throne of the house of Israel. Since the sun, moon, and stars still shine, these promises must be still in effect, and they cannot possibly apply to the Jews, who never were a company of nations, and who ceased to be a nation at all in A.D. 70. On the other hand, Israel has fulfilled all of this, as we shall see. God said that the Jews were to be destroyed as a nation, and to become scattered outcasts in all lands. In the 18th chapter of Jeremiah, God used the parable of the potter making a clay bottle on the potter's wheel. And on the first trial, the bottle was spoiled. So the potter mashed it back into a lump and tried again. And on the second trial, he made a perfect bottle. God said that he would remake Israel into the kind of nation he wanted, just as the potter had done with the soft clay. But in the next chapter, Jeremiah 19, God told the prophet to get an earthen bottle which had been burned hard, and to assemble the elders and important men of Jerusalem. Then God said, Then shalt thou break the bottle in the sight of the men that go with thee, and shall say to them, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Even so will I break this people in this city, as one breaketh a potter's vessel that cannot be made whole again. Again, in Jeremiah 15, verse 4, and chapter 24, verse 29, God said of the Jews, And I will cause them to be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth, because of Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, for that which he did in Jerusalem. And I will deliver them to be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth for their hurt, to be a reproach and a proverb, a taunt and a curse, in all the places whither I shall drive them. In fulfillment of this, after the 70 weeks, or 490 years, of Daniel 9, verse 24, were completed, Titus, the Roman general, destroyed Jerusalem in A.D. 70, and the Jews were broken as a nation, and have had no king of their own. In John 19, verse 15, they spoke truly, We have no king but Caesar. Israel, on the other hand, was to become a very numerous people, 
besides the many statements of this in Genesis chapters 13, 15, 22, 16, 26, and 28, it is repeated in Hosea 1, verse 10. Yet the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. The Jews, on the other hand, were to be reduced to a remnant. In Ezekiel 5, verses 11 and 12, God said, Wherefore, as I live, saith the Lord God, surely, because thou hast defiled my sanctuary with all thy detestable things and with all thine abominations, therefore will I also diminish thee. Neither shall mine eye spare, neither will I have pity. A third part of thee shall die with the pestilence, and with famine shall they be consumed in the midst of thee, and a third part shall fall by the sword round about thee, and I will scatter a third part into all the winds, and I will draw out a sword after them. See also Jeremiah 15, verses 7 to 9, and so forth. <clears throat> the total Jewish population of the world is estimated today to be about 16 million people almost exactly what it was estimated to be just before Hitler's completely mythical massacre of six million Jews who were not killed at all. They are not so prolific that in 20 years they could increase their numbers by 60% as they would have to do if the alleged massacre was true. To conceal this fact, the Jews now seek to falsify the records. You will remember that in our 1960 census, it was not permitted to ask anyone his religion, so that you couldn't find out that at least five million of the supposedly dead six million had been illegally admitted to the United States. But this 16 million is certainly not as the stars of the heavens or as the sand which is upon the seashore for numbers. For another thing, Israel was to become blind to its identity. In Romans 11, verse 25, Paul comments that blindness in part has happened to Israel. This is in fulfillment of Isaiah 42, verses 19 and 20. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger that I sent, seeing many things, but thou observest not, opening the ears, but he heareth not? You remember that God's servant is Israel. The Jews, on the other hand, are not blind to their identity. They know their origin and history, although they try to fool you into thinking that they are Israel. And generally, they've succeeded in this deception. Again, Israel was to receive the new covenant, Christianity. Jeremiah 31, 33 prophesied it, and in Hebrews 8, verse 10, Paul quotes it in proof of this. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law in their inward parts, and write it in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Have the Jews received the new covenant? Of course not. As the beloved Apostle John said in 1 John 2, verse 23, Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. And in John 15, verse 23, Jesus Christ himself said, He that hateth me, hateth my Father also. The Jews do not fulfill any of the principal prophecies concerning Israel. Therefore, the Jews are not Israel. On the other soundtrack of this tape, we will see who the Jews are. But does Israel exist today, or has God violated all of his promises? Yes, Israel exists today, for the Anglo-Saxon, Scandinavian, and Germanic peoples have received the fulfillment of God's promises and prophecies. First, they are a great nation and a company of nations, all of the same race. The United States is the largest civilized nation in the world. Its population is succeeded only by China, India, and Russia. It is the richest, the most advanced, the most benevolent in its policies, and has the greatest degree of liberty of any large nation. Between the two world wars, the former British Empire was officially reorganized into the British Commonwealth of Nations. Canada and Australia are independent nations. 
The Scandinavian and Germanic nations are of the same blood, have largely the same customs, and can be identified historically as the peoples who furnished most of the population of the British Isles and its colonies and the United States. Second, they are very numerous, as the prophecies said Israel would be. In the last two centuries, the population of the United States has increased from a mere handful to over 180 million, of whom about 140 million are white Christians of Anglo-Saxon, Scandinavian, or Germanic stock. In the last three centuries, the population of the British Isles and their colonies of Canada and Australia and New Zealand increased from about 5 million to over 70 million Anglo-Saxons. The nations of Germany, Austria, Holland, Denmark, Norway, Sweden, and Finland add about 96 million more. So the total number of the Anglo-Saxon, Scandinavian, and Germanic peoples is well over 300 million. Third, they are a maritime people. Of the descendants of Israel, Numbers 24, verse 7 prophesies, His seed shall be in many waters. And in Psalm 89, verse 25, it says, I will set his hand also in the sea, and his right hand in the rivers. Today, the world's greatest navies are those of the United States and Britain and the three greatest merchant marine fleets are those of the United States, Britain, and Norway. Fourth, they are the greatest military powers. Jeremiah 51, verse 20, gives God's word. Thou art my battle axe and weapons of war, for with thee will I break in pieces the nations, and with thee will I destroy kingdoms. Throughout history this has been true. Two centuries after being taken captive by Assyria, the peoples of Israel, who were then generally known as Scythians, had bled Assyria white by their constant warfare against it, so that Assyria was an easy pushover victory for the Medes and Persians just before they turned their attention to Babylon. It was the Israel tribes on their march into Europe being then called the Visigoths, Ostrogoths, and Vandals, who crushed the Roman Empire. The peoples of Anglo-Saxon Israel defeated Russia under the Tsars, destroyed the great empires of Spain and Japan, and conquered Turkey and Italy. Not without heavy cost, of course, for the promises of easy victory were among the promises made through Moses, and these were conditional upon keeping the law. But the promise of final victory so great that the enemy is shattered, even though the cost be heavy, this promise is unconditional, and it has been consistently fulfilled to only one people, those whom we identify as Israel. Fifth, they possess the gates of their enemies. You will remember that this was one of God's promises, which we found in Genesis 22, verse 17. Obviously, this doesn't mean a wooden gate in some person's front yard, but the gateways of hostile nations, the great waterways of the world. Consider the fact that the Anglo-Saxon nations, and they alone, have power to close every important water gate in the world. American and British fleets based at Scotland, the Orkney Islands, Gibraltar, Malta, Aden, Cape Town, in Australia, Singapore, the Philippines, Hawaii, San Francisco, Puget Sound, Panama, the Falkland Islands, Hampton Roads, and Iceland. These dominate and can close the Skagerrak, the Baltic Sea, the North Sea, the English Channel, the Straits of Gibraltar, the Mediterranean, the Suez Canal, the Indian Ocean, the waters around Southeast Asia and the East Coast of Asia, the coasts of Africa and around the Cape of Good Hope, the coasts of North and South America, the Straits of Magellan and around Cape Horn, and all trade routes across the Atlantic, Pacific, and Indian Oceans. And they have proved this by actually doing it in two world wars. Sixth, they possess the desolate heritages of the earth. In Isaiah 49, verse 8, God says, Thus saith the Lord, in an acceptable time have I heard thee, and in a day of salvation have I helped thee, and I will preserve thee, and give thee for a covenant of the people to establish the earth, to cause to inherit the desolate heritages. 
No one else has so successfully developed the colonies, which were desolate when they were first occupied, as have these people. Compare what the United States has done in its southwestern states with Mexico. Similar land, with fully as great undeveloped riches, and separated from us by only an imaginary line. Compare British Africa with the African colonies of all other nations. Compare the development of Palestine and Iraq while under British rule. Compare this with Turkey, Arabia, Iran, and so forth. Seventh, they have expanded in colonies in all directions. Deuteronomy 3, verse 8 says, When the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. Genesis 28, verse 14 says, Thou shalt spread abroad to the west and to the east, and to the north and to the south, and in thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Isaiah 54, verses 2 and 3 tells us, Enlarge the place of thy tent, and let them stretch forth the curtains of thine habitations. Spare not, lengthen thy cords, and strengthen thy stakes, for thou shalt break forth on the right hand and on the left, and thy seed shall inherit the nations, and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. Their colonies were established in every sea, in Europe, North and South America, Africa, Australia, New Zealand, and Asia. Who else ever had such colonies? All the ancient empires were insignificant compared to this. Since we have allowed the Jews to teach us to turn our backs on God, we have unwisely abandoned our colonies, and the chaos in the world today is largely a result of our failure to obey God's commands to occupy and rule the uncivilized peoples. However, even this was also prophesied, though that is another subject. Eighth, they have maintained the continuity of the throne of David. David's descendants continued on the throne in Jerusalem until King Zedekiah was taken prisoner to Babylon, at which time all of his sons were slain. But the prophet Jeremiah took the king's daughters first to Egypt, as we read in Jeremiah 43, verse 6, and from there by way of Spain to Ireland, where Zedekiah's daughter, Teotethi, was married to Eochade, the Heriman, or chief king of Ireland. Eochade was a descendant of Zara, one of the twin sons of Judah, while David was a descendant of Pharez, the other twin. Killing all of Hezekiah's sons didn't end the dynasty, as it was established law in Israel ever since they first entered Palestine, that when a man died leaving no sons, his daughters received the entire inheritance. The two king lines of the tribe of Judah were united in this marriage, and the lineage is clearly traced in the histories of Ireland, Scotland, and England, unbroken down to the present Queen Elizabeth. Thus the prophecy that David's descendants should always be on the throne over an Israelite nation has been fulfilled, and by the Anglo-Saxon nations only. This is covered but a tiny fraction of the Bible's proof that the Anglo-Saxon, Scandinavian, and Germanic people are the Israel of the Bible. Scholars have found nearly a hundred prophecies concerning Israel which have been fulfilled by this one group of people. When you consider that the United Nations now recognizes more than 100 member nations, the odds against any one nation fulfilling the first of these prophecies is obviously at least 100 to 1. The odds against the same nation fulfilling both the first and second prophecies again multiplies this by a hundred, making 10,000 to one. And the odds against the same nation fulfilling the first, second, and third prophecies becomes one million to one, and so forth. Well, you figure it out. Keep on multiplying by a hundred, oh, even 50 more times. But even that isn't all. A group of nations all of the same blood have done this. Not a random assortment like China and Spain, or Egypt and Brazil, but all of the same racial group. So this again multiplies the odds. Do you think that all this could have happened by mere accident? 
And if you do think that this was pure accident, then what has become of God's prophecies and promises? Was God too ignorant to know that he couldn't make good on his word and that all the things he had promised to Israel would never get there but would all be taken by other people? No, I don't think that God made any failures or any mistakes. He promised and prophesied many things about Israel. They have all come to pass, and they have all been made good to the same racial group of nations. This people has Israel's fingerprints. Then followed the siege of Jerusalem, which was ended when the angel of the Lord killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night, and Sennacherib gave up the siege and fled back to his own land. In confirmation of this, Sennacherib's own record of this says, I then besieged Hezekiah of Judah, who had not submitted to my yoke and I captured forty-six of his strong cities and fortresses, and innumerable small cities which were round about them, with the battering of rams and the assault of engines and the attack of foot soldiers, and by mines and breaches made in the wall. I brought out therefrom two hundred thousand one hundred fifty people, both small and great. Hezekiah himself, like a caged bird, I shut up within Jerusalem, his royal city. Ancient kings were boastful of their victories, but never of their defeats. So King Sennacherib tactfully fails to state how the siege of Jerusalem ended. But he does confirm the capture of all the other cities of Judah and the deportation therefrom of 200,150 people. Remember that all the people of the ten northern tribes were already settled around the south end of the Caspian Sea in the Assyrian deportation of Israel. Now to them was added a large portion of the two southern tribes of Benjamin and Judah, so that the Assyrian deportation included all of the ten tribes and a substantial representation from the other two. These were the people who became your ancestors and mine when they moved into Europe. Over the years, the increasing numbers of the Israelite tribes expanded northward along both sides of the Caspian Sea. They were not basically city builders, but farmers and herdsmen. Probably in the early part of their stay there, the Assyrians sternly discouraged the building of cities, which would naturally be fortified centers of resistance. As they were moving into this area, herded along as prisoners, robbed of all their belongings, they had to make themselves brush shelters or booths where they stopped for any length of time. Here in the southwest, our Indians call such a brush shelter a wikiup. The Hebrews called it a sukkah, applying the name also to a tent. It was the only house the nomad owned. The plural of sukkah was sukkah. Gradually, this was slurred over into skuth and used of a tent dweller or nomad. And finally, among the Greeks, this was slurred over into Sith and Scythian. The great carving on the Behistun rock made about 516 B.C. carried inscriptions showing the many different nations who were tributary to King Darius I of Persia. These inscriptions were written in Old Persian, in Median, and in Assyrian. They showed that among these were a Scythian nation called in Assyrian and Babylonian Gimri, the name meaning the tribes. From Gimri was derived the name of the Kimirians, who settled somewhat to the north and into the Ukraine. But the Behistun inscriptions also stated that these people were called Sakka in Persian and Median. So already the later names are beginning to evolve. The great Greek historian Herodotus, who lived from 484 to 425 B.C., and who was generally called the father of history, speaking of these people, says, the Sacchi, or Siths, were clad in trousers and had on their heads tall, stiff caps rising to a point. They bore the bow of their country and the dagger, besides which they carried the battle axe, or Sagaris. They were, in truth, Emergian Scythians, but the Persians called them Sakai, since that is the name which they give to all Scythians. Incidentally, some of the magnificent carved walls of the ancient ruins of the Persian palace at Persepolis 
show illustrations of those satay in their trousers and pointed caps bringing tribute to the Persian king. We are now getting further clues to these people. Herodotus says that the Scythians or Sakai first appeared in that land in the 7th century BC which is the very same period in which the tribes of Israel were settled there by their Assyrian conquest. Their use of the battle axe as a weapon is a carryover from their history as Israel. In Jeremiah 51 verse 20 God says of Israel, Thou art my battle axe and weapons of war, for with thee will I break in pieces the nations, and with thee will I destroy kingdoms. We will see later that the name evolved from Sake to Saxon, and it is noteworthy that the battle axe was the great weapon of the Saxons. These Scythians, or Sakai, lived up to God's description of Israel as his battle axe and weapons of war. They became a military people of great power who did much to break up ancient nations. The Greek geographer and historian Strabo, who lived between 63 B.C. and about 21 A.D., says, most of the Scythians, beginning from the Caspian Sea, are called Dahe Scythi, and those situated more toward the east Massagetai and Sakai. The rest have the common name of Scythians, but each tribe has its own peculiar name. The Sakai had made incursions similar to those of the Chimerians and Creries, some near their own country, others at a greater distance. They occupied Bactriana and got possession of the most fertile tract in Armenia, which was called after their own name, Sakasimi. They advanced even as far as the Cappadocians, those particularly situated near the Euxine Sea, which today we call the Black Sea, who are now called the Pontici. This was but the early part of their expansion, however. When a century had elapsed since their deportation to this land of Scythia, they had grown strong enough to begin the long series of harassing wars against their conquerors, the Assyrians. They lacked the strength to capture the powerfully fortified group of cities around the Assyrian capital, and in turn, their nomadic habits made it easy for them to retreat before a too powerful Assyrian army. But generations of this constant warfare wore down the Assyrians and bled them white, so that when the Medes finally overran Assyria and captured Nineveh in 612 BC, their victory was a fairly easy one against the exhausted Assyrians. From this point on, I could refer you to just one historical book which alone fully traces the Scythians on to their settlement in England as the Anglo-Saxons. A History of the Anglo-Saxons by Sharon Turner does a magnificent job of this. As most of you know, I am a lawyer by profession, and a lawyer soon learns to distinguish between the man who actually knows the facts and the man who is merely repeating hearsay, that is, gossip and rumor he has heard from others. But how do we know whether these others actually knew what they were talking about? Unless a man has seen the occurrence with his own eyes, his ideas on the subject are no better than the accuracy of the information he has received. Now, no historian living in our times can have any personal knowledge of what happened 2,000 years ago, so his writings can mean no better than the source material he has obtained from people who lived and wrote at a time when accurate information could still be had. Most modern history books are based on rather scanty documentation from early sources, so it is so much easier for one historian to copy from another. But Sharon Turner's History of the Anglo-Saxons is one of the most thoroughly documented historical studies ever produced, and its reliability is beyond question. He traces the Anglo-Saxons of Britain back to the Scythians. Unfortunately, he doesn't go the one step further and trace the Scythians back to Israel, but we can do that from other sources. But let us go back to the Scythians as the people of Israel became known in the land to which they were deported. Diodorus Siculus, a Greek historian who lived in the times of Julius and Augustus Caesar, says this, The Scythians anciently enjoyed but a small tract of ground, but through their valor, growing stronger by degrees, they enlarged their dominion far and near and attained at last to a vast and glorious empire. 
At the first a very few of them, and those very despicable for their mean origin, seated themselves near to the river Araxes. Afterward one of their ancient kings, who was a warlike prince and skillful in arms, gained to their country all the mountainous parts as far as the Mount Caucasus. Sometime afterward, their posterity, becoming famous and eminent for valor and martial affairs, subdued many territories. Then, turning their arms the other way, they led their forces as far as to the river Nile in Egypt. Other historians record that blonde Scythians made an expedition against Palestine and Egypt about 626 B.C. The town of Scythopolis in the Jordan Valley is named for a settlement which they made on this raid. But to continue with Diodorus Siculus, he says, This nation prospered more and more, and had kings that were very famous, from whom the Satans and the Massagetae and the Aramaspians and many others called by other names derived their origin. Amongst others there were two remarkable colonies that were drawn out of the conquered nations by those kings. The one they brought out of Assyria and settled in the country lying between Paphlagonia and Pontus. The other out of Media, which they placed near the river Tanaeus, which people are called Sauronations. Note how God's destiny for these people worked. They would not leave behind any pockets of their people in the lands where their conquerors had settled them. But when they had gained great power, they came back and picked up any who remained taking them on into the migrating mass. Likewise, history records that after the overthrow of Babylon by the Medes and Persians, the Scythians raided it, carrying off with them such of the people of Judah and Benjamin as were not going back to Jerusalem. Even in early times, before the final mass movement into Europe, the Scythians had already begun their march to their new homelands, where some of them had already arrived before the beginning of the Christian era. Pliny the Elder, a Roman historian who lived from 23 to 79 AD, says this, The name Scythian has extended in every direction, even to the Sarmatae and the Germans. But this ancient name now is given only to those who dwell beyond those nations and live unknown to nearly all the rest of the world. Beyond the Danube, are the peoples of Scythia. The Persians have called them with the general name of Sake, which properly belongs only to the nearest nation of them. The more ancient writers give them the name of Arameans. The multitude of these Scythians is quite innumerable. In their life and their habits they much resemble the people of Parthia, Persia as we would say today. The tribes among them that are better known are the Sake, the Massagetae, the Dehi, etc. Others have noted this early migration into Germany. For example, Herodotus mentions a migration and settlement of a people he calls the Siginoi, who themselves claim to be colonists from Media and who migrated as far as the River Rhine in northern Europe. Remember that among the places the Israelites were resettled by the Assyrians were the cities of the Medes and these people themselves said they had come from Media. Also note that Pliny the Elder said that the more ancient writers give them the name of Aramaic, that is Aramean. In modern language we would say Syrian. In Deuteronomy 26 verse 5, every Israelite was commanded to confess that a Syrian ready to perish was my father. And he went down into Egypt and sojourned there with a few, and became a nation great, mighty, and populous. Hence, these ancient writers could correctly identify the Israelite Scythians as Arameans, for they had come from a land which was part of greater Syria. Among the tribe of the Scythians, the Massagetae attracted the notice of all the ancient historians by their numbers and their warlike ability. Those who described them in more detail divided them into the Massagetae and the Physagetae. The Gete part of the name soon evolved into Goth. The Massagetae were the greater Goths, and the Physagetae were the lesser Goths. Thus we already find among the Scythians names we can identify as the people who later conducted the great migrations into Europe. 
The Goths, as we know, were later called Ostrogoths, meaning East Goths, and Visigoths, which means West Goths. But to go back a few centuries, the Sakai were allies of the Medes and Persians in the attack upon Babylon in 536 B.C. Remember that God had said that Israel was my battle axe and weapons of war. For with thee will I break in pieces the nations, and with thee will I destroy kingdoms. So God had used Scythian Israel to maintain constant war against Assyria for nearly a century, until Assyria was too weakened to resist the Medes and Persians. Then God used Scythian Israel, the Sakai, to help in the conquest of Babylon when its time had come. Later, King Cyrus of Persia was foolish enough to try to conquer his former allies, the Sakai, but he was killed in the battle. King Darius also tried to conquer them, but they being a nomadic people, they retreated before his massive armies until he gave up and retired. Professor George Rawlinson says that the original development of the Indo-European language took place in Armenia, which, you will remember, was at that time occupied by Scythian Israel. Certainly from these people we can trace the introduction of this language into Europe. This powerful and increasingly numerous people thereafter spread further north, both east and west of the Caspian Sea. To the west of it they penetrated into the Volga and Don River valleys as the Sauromatians and the Royal Siths, nomadic peoples. To reach these lands they had come up through the Caucasus Mountains by a great pass which is today occupied by the Georgian military road. Perhaps the communists have changed the name of this pass in recent years, but from ancient times until within our own lifetime this pass was known as the Pass of Israel. The white race of Europe is often called Caucasian because the ancestors of many of them did thus come out of the Caucasus Mountains. When Alexander the Great began his great marauding expedition across western Asia and as far as India, he had to skirt the edge of the lands held by the Scythians. In his limitless vanity and ambition he wanted also to conquer them, but it is recorded that their ambassadors said they would never surrender to him, that they were nomadic peoples who, if they couldn't resist, could retreat indefinitely before his armies, and they had no wealthy cities for him to occupy and loot. Alexander invaded their lands long enough to fight one severe battle with them, defeating the Scythian forces he met. But this was evidently just as a lesson to them not to attack the flanks of his forces, for he led his forces out of their territory and never returned to the attack. Remember that Israel is God's battle axe and weapons of war. They had already weakened Assyria, and as allies of the Medes and Persians had helped to overthrow Assyria and Babylon. They had beaten off attempts of the Persians to conquer them. In the article entitled Scythians, Chambers Encyclopedia of 1927 records that the Scythians, after about 128 B.C., overran Persia, routed several Persian armies, and levied tribute from the Persian kings. During the first century before and the first century after Christ, hordes of Scythians, having overthrown the Bactrian and Indo-Greek dynasties of Afghanistan and India, invaded northern India, and there they maintained themselves with varying fortune for five centuries longer. The Jats of India and the Rajputs have both been assigned the Scythian ancestry. The historian Madison Grant writes that Ancient Bactria maintained its Nordic and Aryan aspect long after Alexander's time and did not become Mongolized and receive the sinister name of Turkestan until the 7th century A.D. He also says the Sakai were the blonde peoples who carried the Aryan language to India. A land which was so vast and was not the original home of the Israelite Scythians, but already had some inhabitants when they settled there, must of course show varying types of people. The Nordic or Aryan Israelite Scythians conquered these other races. While some writers speak of a Mongoloid type found in some parts of Scythia, 
Ancient writers pretty well agree that the dominant Sake or Masagetae Scythians were a Nordic people. Dr. Hans Gunther, professor at Berlin University in his Racial Elements of European History, published in the 1920s, says, The investigations into the traces left behind them by that widespread Nordic people, the Sakai or Scythians, with its many tribes, are well worthy of attention. It had been living on the steppes of southeastern Europe and had spread as far as Turkestan and Afghanistan and even to the Indies. The ancient writers, such as Polemon of Ilium, Gallienus, Clement of Alexandria, and Adamantios, state that the Sakai were like the Celts and Germans, and describe them as ruddy fair. The Scythian tribe of the Elams are also described as having a Nordic appearance. Amianus, who lived about A.D. 330 to 400, calls them, almost all tall and handsome, with hair almost yellow, and a fierce look. We have seen that the names of the Massagetae and Thysagetae evolved into Goths, the Ostrogoths, or East Goths, and the Visigoths, or West Goths. The historian Ptolemy, who died about 150 A.D., mentions a Scythian people descended from the Sacae by the name of Saxons, who had come from Media. Albinus, who lived in the first century B.C., also says, the Saxons were descended from the ancient Sacae in Asia, and in process of time they came to be called Saxons. The historian Pridel reports that the Cimbrians came from between the Black and the Caspian Seas, and that with them came the Angli. We are now well into established European history. By the beginning of the 4th century A.D., many of the Goths were already Christians. In the 4th century, there were several collisions between Visigoths and Rome. And in the year 410 A.D., the Visigoths became the masters of Italy and captured Rome. Later, they moved into southern France and northern Spain, where they settled permanently. The Ostrogoths settled in what is modern Hungary, about 455 A.D. Under Theodoric the Great, they conquered Italy about 493 A.D. and set up an Ostrogoth kingdom in Italy, which, however, was short-lived. Their descendants are the fair-skinned and blonde Italians of northern Italy, and we find some of them also in Switzerland. But the Goths had destroyed the Roman Empire. God's battle-axe was again destroying the kingdoms of the Babylonian order of empires. The Angli and the Saxons moved up the Danube Valley and settled in Germany and along the Baltic shores, as is well known. And from there, the Jutes, Angles, and Saxons colonized England after the Roman legions were withdrawn in the year 408 A.D. Actually, the earliest waves of migration penetrated to the farthest edges of the European continent, partly because they could move through nearly empty lands without meeting any people strong enough to effectively resist them partly because they were being pushed farther by the later waves of Israelite migration coming behind them. Hence we find the settlement of the Scandinavian peninsula pretty well completed before the arrival of the Jutes, Angles, and Saxons along the southern shores of the Baltic Sea. The tribes which settled along the shores of the Baltic and the Scandinavian peninsula were a great maritime people as some of the Israelites had been, even when still in Palestine, and as God had prophesied. The Jutes, Angles, and Saxons came from within the Baltic Sea, but their ocean-born raids on England were heavy and continuous. Later, by invitation of the British, they settled along the eastern shores in East Anglia, Mercia, Northumbria, Sussex, Wessex, Essex, and Kent. William the Conqueror invaded England in 1056 with the Normans, but these were not Latin French. They were actually Norse Vikings who had settled on the coast of France in the province of Normandy, the word Norman being really derived from Norseman. So we see that the migrations of Israel, first into Scythia, expanding there, then gaining the names of Goths, Angli, and Saxons, and under those names, moving on into their present European homelands, is a well-established historical fact. 
There is also the fascinating story of the early migrations by sea, but that is another subject in itself, which I will have to take up some other time.